0: We are in the book of Jonah. Anybody ever heard of him? A whale. Well, we always hear that. We always think that. We always say that. However, the Bible doesn't tell us that. We do know it was a really big fish, whatever it was. And reality is, that's a lot of what we know about it, is that Jonah was swallowed by a fish. And we do know that he was vomited out of the fish. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I hope that was the only thing in that fish's stomach when Jonah came out. (laughs) Interesting thing. You know, sometimes sometimes we can just tell a story. Hopefully a good story. And we can tell a story, and the story gives us a representation of the character of Christ character of God. It gives us a, it's almost a better way sometimes to reach people and tell them about this amazing God that we serve than sometimes preaching a sermon at them or quoting a scripture. We just flat out tell a story about what this amazing God has done in our life. And the amazing thing is the book of Jonah is like that. The book of Jonah is written by Jonah. Duh, right? And it's interesting because Jonah doesn't look so good in this book. He's a prophet of God. But when he tells this story, he, it's kind of about a lot of his failure and his disobedience. But all the things that take place around this part of the story show us so much about the character of God. So much about who He is. You know, So instead of, like most prophets that we read about, sharing a vision from God or speaking as the real oracles of God, God gives them words and they speak them forth, Jonah tells a story. And it's an amazing, amazing story. And we're going to look at that story and I'm going to try to tell it as a story. And then we're going to see how does this story really apply to us? What can we learn from this story? There's so much more. I mean... Reality is there's some great representation about that being in the, the belly of the fish for three days, Jesus dying and being in the tomb for three days. There's a lot of those things. But in the big picture of this story, being swallowed by a fish isn't the main point. The main point goes so much beyond that. So when I look at this story, I look at it as kind of five separate chapters. First chapter would be simply this the call of God. Now, Jonah, if we go back, and I believe it was in Second Kings, he was talked about and made reference to. So Jonah's been a prophet. He's been prophesying and serving the Lord for quite some time. So this wasn't like God just took a, took a guy like Amos out of the field and said, hey, I want you to go do this. This was a prophet of God. And his, it says we don't learn much about him. In the first two cha- verses of, the, of chapter 1, we hear that he's the son of Amatai. Doesn't mean much to most of us. And we learn from 2 Kings that he was born or from a small town or small village called Gath-Hefer. And Gath-Hefer is actually just a small town in Galilee, just a little bit north of Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus. And so he's very rural, and he is this prophet. And then we read in verse two the call, the call of God. It's pretty simple. The Lord it says the Lord gives Jonah this message: Get up, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. Nineveh, the great city and cry against it for their wickedness has come up before me. That's all we get to read right here about his call. Now Nineveh and you got this helps us to understand I think the mind of Jonah in this process. Nineveh is referred to as the great city and it was the capital of the Assyrian empire. And the Assyrian empire was the powerful empire of the time, of the day. They were a very idolatrous nation. Idolatry was rampant. They were a nation that conquered and they were known for being so filled with pride and a ruthless nation. They had as their goal world conquest. That's what they wanted to do. And obviously, they were an extreme threat to Israel. Israel. Jonah wanted nothing to do with them except for God to send fire on them and destroy the city. That's what Jonah wanted. Because Jonah knew, in his mind, that's exactly what this evil nation deserved. So this is the call of God that came to Jonah. And as a prophet of God, he would have been used to hearing the Lord's voice, probably had been known to be pretty obedient So what did Jonah do when he gets this call of God? He goes in the opposite direction of Nineveh to hide from the presence of the Lord. I have a map. I hope you can see it a little bit. Over here, A is Gath Hefer. This is where he was from. You see where Nineveh is? North and east, about 500 miles that's where the Lord wanted him to go, to the, the capital city of Assy- the Assyrian Empire. So what does he do instead? It says he heads down to the, the village or the coastal, the port city of Joppa. He goes down to Joppa. And if you can just picture in your mind, and this is not in the Scripture, so this is in the Gospel of Mike. But, you, you know, i got to buy a ticket. i got to get out of here. i got to go a long ways in the opposite direction because I'm going to go hide from the presence of the Lord. Let's see, I could go just over there to Egypt. Uh-uh, that's not far enough. I got enough money to buy a ticket for further than that. Maybe I'll go to northern Africa. No, maybe I need to go further. So he, what's he do? He decides he's going to buy a ticket, get on a ship, and go to Tarshish. About at the end of the world at that time, on the southern part of Spain. Approximately 2,500 miles in the wrong direction. To hide... From the presence of the Lord. Well, we know the story. That doesn't go so well with him. And think about this as a prophet of God, one of the things the Hebrews would have studied a lot was the book of Psalms. And David wrote very clearly, and he would have known this in Psalms 139, starting in verse 7. I can never escape from your spirit, God. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, there you are. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride in the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest ocean, even your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. Jonah would have known this. How in the world could he then decide to ignore what God told him to do and think he's going to go hide from the presence of the Lord 2,500 miles in the other direction? I would offer that this is what anger, anger, and pride and rebellion can do to us if we're not careful. His emotions took over. And it really didn't matter at that moment what God had asked him to do. Second chapter in my mind is the storm. And you can read about this storm starting in verse 4 and going on through at least verse 10 even further. He decides to run from God. And there's a lesson to be learned here, guys and gals. It's not the best decision to make is to run from God. Because he didn't get very far in that boat. And And it tells us, and you'll see a phrase that repeats over and over and over in this book, where the Lord appoints things. And all these things that he appoints do exactly what God tells them to do. So the storm comes and it says that the Lord hurls this wind. Can't you just picture the Lord hurling a wind on the sea where this boat is? And it says the storm was a mighty, mighty storm. And it was such a horrid storm that the sailors on board the ship knew that the ship was going to crash. It was going to sink. It was going to be broken apart in the storm. And it says that they all were so scared that they were all praying to their gods, little g. They all worshipped something. They all had an idol of some sort. And they're all praying to their gods. And it tells us the storm is so violent, they're actually taking their valuable cargo and throwing it overboard, trying to lighten the load so they could row the ship. Row the ship to shore. They were terrified. Knew that they were going to die. So, what do they do? Well, they're praying to their gods. And then the captain notices somebody's not present praying to their gods. And they go look for Jonah. And where is Jonah? He's asleep in the hold of the boat. Gives us another picture of Jesus, doesn't it? During the storm, asleep. And they wake him up and say, What are you doing? Can't you realize that there is a storm? We're all in danger. We all need to be praying to our gods. And the storm didn't subside. It didn't get any better. So they decided to draw lots because they believed that somebody on board this ship offended their god, whatever their god was, and because of that, their god is causing this storm and they're all going to die in the ocean or in the sea. Well, guess who the lot fell on, right? I mean, if Jonah really thought he was going to hide, I bet as they were drawing lots, he's like, I'm in big trouble. And of course, Jonah, the lot falls on him. And the lot falls on Jonah. And right away, the sailors start asking him questions. And it says this, and I'm going to read verse 8 and 9. Can you almost picture this? They're asking, what do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And now the sailors really get terrified. And the sailors even say these words, How could you run from the presence of your God? These pagan sailors know better than Jonah the prophet. How could you do this? How could you do such a thing? Well, Jonah says, yeah, it's my fault. What you need to do is throw me overboard and kill me, and the storm will quit. Now, I would have expected the pagan sailors to have thrown him overboard if he even opened his mouth. But these pagan sailors said, no, we, we can't do that. We do not want to destroy innocent life. So what did they do? The order went forth, row harder. Try to get this thing to shore. And of course, it didn't work. So they prayed. Now it says they prayed to the Lord. Not to their gods. Now they prayed to the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. And it goes on and says, they prayed and they're they're praying, Lord, sorry, but don't hold this against us. We don't want to shed this innocent blood. We don't want to throw this man overboard. We don't want to do that, but we're going to. And they throw him overboard. And the sea calms, the storm calms. And then it says this in verse 16, and gives us another picture of the God we serve. From this story of Jonah. It says, At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to him. Basically, what we have here is a revival on a sinking ship. These pagan soldiers or sailors all of a sudden fear God. He had done this amazing miracle. They threw him over and the storm stopped. And he became their God instead of all their little gods. Now we get to the point where we're going to get introduced to the fish. And this is one of the parts of this story that a lot of people say, this is not a true story. This can't be a true story. It's a parable or just made up to make some good points. Nobody can live in the belly of a fish. It's not possible. Well, if you research this, I found one reputable one. There's a number of them you hear about, but there's a story that seemed very reputable. And I think I I put up a slide or didn't I? I can't remember. Good. His name was James Bartley. And at the time of this, he was a young man. He was a novice on board a whaling ship. And you've got to go back in time to remember what a whaling ship looked like. They didn't look like our ships, right? So they went out with a bigger ship, a bigger boat, and then they'd send out two-man crews and little boats that we would almost call a rowboat. And one of them would be the harpooner and one would be the spotter. And they would hope that the whale would come up, or the fish, the whale would come up close enough to the surface so the harpooner could throw the harpoon in the whale. And sure enough, that day, James was the spotter on one of the two boats and a whale a sperm whale came up to the up near the boats close enough that he sunk the harpoon into the into the the whale deeply so it was attached and it dove and it took over 800 foot of line down and then all of a sudden the line got loose and they knew what this meant the whale was coming back to the surface so now they're getting ready to watch where the whale comes to the surface Well, it comes a little bit too close. It comes up right under the boats. The boats are tipped, the waves, the whale is thrashing, Water's going everywhere. Two of the men are rescued from the other boat. And James and the other man in his boat, they can't find. Approximately 15 hours later, the sperm whale came to the surface. It was dead. They went and got the whale. And as they were cutting it and skinning it and opening it up, they had actually, according to this history, and you can look this in the maritime history, the English maritime history, there was something in the stomach moved. And they opened it, they made a cut, and what they saw was the boot of a man and his jeans. And when they opened it further, here was James Bartley hunched over in a little fetal position in the whale, and he was alive. All his body hair from the head to the toes of his feet was gone. His skin was bleached white like there was no blood left in him. And he was blind. And he lived approximately 18 years after this event. I just tell you that story because I thought it was interesting. But the reality is it doesn't matter whether a man, we think a man could live in a whale or not, or fish or not. Jesus, God could do anything he wants to do. If he spoke the earth into being and the whole universe into being, he could create a fish to give this guy an Uber. So he could do this if he wanted to do this. And that's what took place. And I like the way it said, and this is the phrase, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. The Lord appointed. The Lord made arrangements. And you're going to see that when he talks about so many other things that God did. And why is God doing all these things? He's doing all these things to get Jonah's attention, get him back on track, and get him to do and fulfill the calling that he has on his life. I don't ever want to be swallowed by a big fish, but there's a lot of other things that happen in our lives when we try to go a different direction than God wants us to go. And of course, we never usually tie it all together to the ultimate call in our life. If we get out of it, we go, oh, thank goodness. If we don't, we just keep going. Then something else happens. Something else. God will get our attention. You know, it says that before he, he formed us in the womb and He had a calling on our life. And there was works assigned to us that He knew beforehand. Think about that. God will His purposes will come to pass. The thing that I can't understand is, it says Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. And then he decided to pray. Now, I'm not the smartest nail in the box, but it wouldn't have taken me three days to pray. I don't think. But after three days, it says he prays. And at the very end of his prayer, he says these words, Salvation is from the Lord. And God has that fish go to dry land and vomit him up on dry land. And guess what Jonah decides to do? I think I'll go to Nineveh. I think I'll go to Nineveh. Why? Because God gives him a second chance. Chapter 3 in my story. It's actually chapter 3 in the Bible too of Jonah. It's the second chance. And once again, God starts with, get up, arise, go to Nineveh. And this time he talks a little bit more about Nineveh. And it talks about this three-day thing. And the wording in there in the Hebrew, Nineveh was such a large city, it would take three days to walk around the circumference of the city. Now, not all of that city at that time was buildings, houses. A lot of times, the wall around the city would also have a lot of farmland and pasture land inside the walls. So if there was an attack, they could have livestock and food sources right inside the walls. But whatever it was, he said, it's a great city. It's a big city. And he says, "You, I want you to go there, and I want you to declare 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. We don't even get in the command that he has given, the typical thing, repent or or else, in 40 days the city will be destroyed. He just flat out says, this is the message. I want you to go through the city, and I want you to declare 40 days, God's going to destroy this city. He's had it with your wickedness. Verse 5 of chapter 3 says, Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They called a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them, from the king on down. And if you read further in the story, not only did they, and this gives us a picture of what was inside the walls of the city, not even... They even put sackcloth on the animals. And he said, no human being nor any animal is going to eat or drink while we are fasting and praying. They took the Word of the Lord seriously. This pagan, prideful, wicked city took the Lord's threat seriously. In James Jonah chapter 3, verse 7, it says, No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything. This is the command of the king. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways, stop all their violence. Who knows? Who can tell? Perhaps, even yet, God will change His mind and hold back His fierce anger from destroying us. They had no guarantee, they had no promise, yet they responded to the Lord. And if you read that in Jonah, it should bring to remembrance a verse that we find in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, where God is speaking to his people. And he says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, pray, I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. There's even a promise there. Here there was none, yet those people responded. The same command is there for us today. You know, as a nation, man, if we would humble ourselves, seek the face of God, pray, turn from our wicked ways, true repentance, turning away from our sin. He says, I'll hear, I'll hear and I will heal your land. The next chapter in my story here is Jonah's response and then God's rebuke. God didn't destroy Nineveh. Now, if you're the prophet of God, if anybody's here has been called by God to prophesy, one of the things that would make you very happy as a prophet would be if your word came to pass. Amen? Well... <laughs> Jonah goes in, declares this word. The city repents and God relents and Jonah is ticked off. He is mad. He is mad. Why is he mad? We're not totally sure. Maybe he's because he's a prophet and because God didn't do what he said he was going to do. More likely it was, he knew this city was evil and we'll see in some of his comments, God, I knew you. I knew you would do this. I knew you'd do this. I mean, that's like you or I getting a real prompting from the Lord. You know, pick out this person that you really would never say you hate, but you don't like at all. And they're just evil. They are so sinful. You want nothing to do with them. And God says, hey, I want you to go share the good news of the gospel with them. No way. Not doing it. They don't deserve it. They deserve to go to hell. That's what they deserve. That's what I'm going to... No, I'm not going there. So you get the, the guy says, no, just go tell him You're going to destroy him." Okay, I can do that. You go tell him that and they fall to their knees, fall on their face. They repent. They confess every sin they can think of. And they wake up. They get up. They wake up. They, they're a changed person. You can see it in their countenance. You can see it. They've, God's changed them. And you go, son of a gun. I shouldn't have done that. I knew he'd do that because he's a kind, compassionate, loving God. And Jonah actually says all of this to the Lord. I knew it. Matter of fact, I don't have it in my notes, but I'm going to turn to it quick. Verse 2 of chapter 4. Lord, I knew. This is why I went to Tarshish or tried to. I knew that you are a gracious, compassionate God slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity or judgment. I knew it. And I don't, I didn't want them to get that part of you. I wanted them to get the fire and brimstone. But it didn't happen that way. But he's saying, that's why I didn't obey. And he's so mad. And, I, and in the Hebrew, one of the things you'll hear when you look at the lexicons in the Hebrew... It is a very, very, very strong anger. I mean, he is ticked off. Matter of fact, he's so mad, he goes on and says, take my life from me, God. Kill me. It's better than being alive. Now that's what you call angry. And the Lord just confronts his anger and says, oh really, do you have a reason to be angry? Do you have a good reason to be so angry? And that Jonah at this time is smart enough to keep his mouth shut and doesn't answer. So what does he do instead? He goes and pouts. We just go pout. It's not what I wanted. But you're God, I'm not. And I don't like it, I'm going to go pout. So what's he do? He goes outside the city, and in my mind, it, it, he goes up on a hill, and he sits down. And you're just going to watch what God's going this, to do to the this city. And he's pouting because he knows God's not going to destroy the city. And God then, and this is my fifth chapter in the story, I called it God's object lesson. Sometimes we learn through object lessons. So Jonah's sitting out there. Remember, this is a desert country. And he's outside city, sitting there waiting to see what's going to happen. And the desert sun is unbearable. It is so hot. And then it says, God appoints a plant. Notice, a fish listens to God, a plant listens to God, a worm is going to listen to God, and Jonah wouldn't. And we don't always either. It says, God appoints a plant. In other words, God miraculously causes a plant to grow where Jonah's sitting in this scorching sun. And the plant grows so quickly overnight, In the next day it's a big canopy of shade for Jonah. And, God's, and Jonah's thinking, this is a pretty good deal. But then God appoints a worm. And the worm come and destroys the stem of the plant. And as quickly as it grew and appeared, it withers and dies. And Jonah is sitting there. And it says, God appoints a scorching east wind to come blowing across the desert. And the sun's beating down on him. And again, Jonah's begging to die. And he's so upset that the plant died. And God says to him, you're upset that the plant died? You cared about the plant? You cared about that plant more than you cared about 120,000 people in the city of Nineveh? And many people believe that the way that's written, it's talking about 120,000 children under the age of accountability. So this city could have been anywhere four, five, 600,000 people. And he's saying, you cared more for this plant. And Jonah this time says, oh yeah, I have a good reason to be angry. And then, then the Lord lets him have it. I'm going to just read Jonah 4.10. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? There's so much in this story that you could preach on sermon after sermon after sermon. But I want us to just maybe get four or five points to challenge each one of us. First one is this. What is your Nineveh? What is your Tarshish? What is God calling you to do? What is he prompting to you to do? And are we going to that Nineveh, that calling, fulfilling it in our life, or are we resisting God and going our own way? Going in our own direction? You know, in Jonah's case, the cost of disobedience was... A whole lot of, a lot of things, starting with the, the storm. And not only did his disobedience cause him problems, he, he put the risk a whole crew of sailors, their lives at risk. Disobedience comes with a cost. And our disobedience doesn't always just affect us, it affects those around us. Do we have a Nineveh? Do we have a Tarshish? Are we obedient to what God called us to, or aren't we? The second one, God delivers us even when we resist his will. God will get your attention. God will get our attention. You know, god the storm in the sea, the, the fish, the plant, the worm, the wind, all of these things, as he's going through them, I am sure he's not thinking, oh, what a great God. He's trying to get me back on the right track in my life. But God will get us back on the right track. If He truly has a destiny and a calling on our life and He's got works that He planned for you and me before we were even born, He's going to accomplish them. Why wouldn't we want to avoid all of those attention-getters and just respond in obedience right up front? God will deliver us even when we resist Him. Third one, God gives a second call. Praise God, He gives us a second chance. How many times have we resisted the first time? Maybe there was good reason, rightly or wrongly. I don't know sometimes. Uh, maybe some of you know this, maybe some of you don't. Uh, about 28 years ago, the elders asked if Cindy and I would pray about becoming, me becoming the pastor of the church. The ones that were leaders at the time can probably remember this. It took Cindy and I a whole two weeks to come back with a resounding, no thank you. Now, I personally still believe it was not God's timing, but at the time, we knew there was a call in our life, and I think the elders did at that time, or they probably wouldn't have asked us to consider it. And two years later, God gave us a second chance. And this time, we were obedient to that call. There's so many things in our life that God gives us a second chance. You could sit here this morning hearing this message disqualifying yourself because of this, that, or the other thing. You know, there's so many things. I mean, this is a very personal one, not for me, but probably for many of us in here. I talked about abortion this morning. I know personally a handful at least and maybe more that were in here that had an abortion. And the men were involved in that whole process. That does not disqualify you. God's forgiven Forgiveness. He forgives. He's a God of a second chance. In all of our lives, He will give us a second chance to respond. Last, next one, God loves everybody. God loves all people. Why in the world did God want to save this wicked city of Nineveh? Because He loves people. He loves everybody and everybody gets a chance. Doesn't mean everybody goes to heaven. Doesn't mean that. It means everybody in his mercy and his grace, we will have an opportunity to receive the grace of God. God loves even your enemies, my enemies. And we probably, I don't have any of those. Oh, yeah, we do. Think of the people who we criticize, think of the people who we put down, think of those who we disagree with at many different levels. Think of divisive issues in our nation. What do we want God to do with those people that we would consider our enemies? We want God to save them, I hope. Rescue them from whatever it is. Ninevites were Jonah's enemies. We need to consider, do we have enemies? We, we cannot let petty frustrations and you say, it's not petty, it's a big deal. In the terms of eternity, most of these things in our lives are nothing but petty frustrations that we are allowing in the daily things of life to prevent us to do what God wants to do through our lives. What does He want to do in our lives? You know, think about it. If just, how many of you here have said, don't just rhetorical, how many of us have ever said things like, God couldn't use me, I'm not like them, they do this, they know more, they're that, blah, 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 blah. blah. Yeah, In this story, he used a worm to accomplish his purposes. If he can use a worm, a plant, he can use us. And he wants to use us. You know, what is our attitude towards sinners? And I, I acknowledge there's time I have to really check my spirit because sometimes I think, you know what? They're not saved and they're going to hell. That's good. What a Pharisaical attitude, right? There is nothing redemptive in that attitude. We need to check our hearts. How do we see the lost? How do we see sinners? Do we look at them through the eyes of Pharisees, or do we look at them through the eyes of a Lord who's a redemptive God? There's so many things that we can glean from this story about our Lord. We can't hide from God. None of us can. What he wishes to accomplish through us will come to pass. The scripture I've been referring to is in Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's Ephesians 2.10. He's got works for every single one of us to do. So here's the big idea of all the ideas I could have picked. Here's the big idea. Our task is Christians is by the means, whatever means God has given you and I, to tell the world the message of redemption, the message of salvation, and to rejoice in the salvation of others. That's our mission. That's what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to experience with Him the joy You know, if the angels in heaven rejoice at every time a person gets saved, just think what Jesus must do. And if you've led somebody to the Lord, you know what it feels like to be able to be used by God to change the eternal destiny of somebody else. And God wants us to experience that joy with him as we share the message of the gospel. So the question is, what role are you and I playing to proclaim the gospel to all the world? Starting next door. The hardest mission field. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we We're all a little bit like Jonah in some ways. We all make mistakes. We all let our emotions get in the way. Usually it's fear that prevent us from accomplishing your purposes and your will. God, we thank you for all of the unsaved people that surround us, that we may be part of what you want to do into redeeming the lost. God, I pray that we would see these opportunities as divine appointments, that we would see all people through your eyes. That they are created in your image. Father, we pray that we would not get thrown off track by things going on around us. That we would not get so entangled of the arguments of the world that we lose focus on why we're here. Lord, we pray that we would be active participants in advancing your kingdom for your glory. I pray that this day, this week, and every day, that the kingdom of God would be advancing and we would get to be a part of that. And Lord, as we go into this holiday week, I pray, God, for your protection over all of us, over this community of Ballatin, as there will be so many people coming to this little town. We pray, God, for safety, protection, And we pray for opportunities to be a light that shines in the midst of the world's darkness. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.